Well, good morning, everyone. It's lovely to be back. I was just saying to the managers upstairs as we were praying that rather going to become home, but this is kind of feeling like home from home. <laughs> Believe it or not, this is the sixth time I've been here this year. Four times to your morning service and twice to Ms. Allen's group on the Wednesday afternoon. Hillhead has been part of my journey this year. And you can tell by the emotion that I feel. Very privileged that you have been part of my journey and I have very much appreciated this congregation's support. Have we said good morning to each other? Do you want to take a minute to say good morning to your neighbours? I'm going to lead you now in prayer. I'll start and then we'll continue with the Lord's Prayer. I have a suspicion that we'll all say it in different ways. Maybe my way is different from yours. Don't worry, we'll muddle through. It doesn't matter. The Lord hears our hearts anyway. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come before you this morning, we want to start our prayers by thanking you that you are here, right beside us, in us and with us at the start of our service. We can understand how that can be so little that we almost have no choice but to blindly accept that that is so. Take it for granted. And yet we are not blind. You are God, the creator of the universe. Your son Jesus is the light of the world and it is your Holy Spirit that empowers us to recognize his presence here with us today. Your word says that in your light we see light, that we recognize truth, and so we know the way to walk in this life and into the eternal destiny that you have prepared. Help us, dear Lord, to clear our conscience by quietly telling you in our hearts as we sit before you in the silence now of any matter of which we feel the need to repent this morning. And then help us look up from such repentance, knowing that when something is brought before you about which we say to you that we are truly sorry, we are forgiven, and you have placed the matter as far as east lies from west, because you are a faithful God, and your word tells us that that is so. Help us also this morning, dear Lord, to lay aside our cares from this week just past and still our hearts before you to learn from you, reach out and grow in our faith in you and also receive the comfort of that peace that passes all understanding and comes only from you. Most of all, dear Lord, help us to stop a while and simply rest in your presence. And now we pray together the prayer that you taught your first disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses. Thank <laughs> you. 
Our first reading this morning is taken from Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Our second reading is from James chapter 1, verses 2 to 8. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Those who doubt should not think that they will receive anything from the Lord. They are double-minded and unstable in all they do. Amen. My sermon has a title this morning. Surprise, surprise, it's called The Storm. (laughs) And the lady that just went out with the children just pointed out to me, the children in that corner have done a lovely picture of the storm story of the pink boat that looks more like the Caribbean princess (laughs) my base text is the Mark inversion of the gospel story of the storm which underlay the hugely paraphrased version that I told to the children a few minutes ago what I'm going to do now is look at the context of that story who was Mark Who was his intended audience? And in particular, why did he tell that story in that particular way? And having hopefully created some sort of picture in your mind's eye with the words of the storm story, I'm going to weave into that picture the wonderfully comforting words of Psalm 121 and the rather abrupt guidance from James, both of which were read to us just a few minutes ago by Holly. I've got a sort of scripture tapestry going here this morning and my intention is to explore how this could apply to us now, today, in 2011. So first of all, the Gospel of Mark. You're probably very well aware that Mark is one of the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke. Synoptic because all three of these Gospels tell the story of Jesus' life and ministry, not in the same way, but a roughly similar way. The fourth gospel, the gospel of John, is very different, and that's for another day. The three synoptic gospels were written sometime in the second half of the first century. And in some quarters, they think Mark was the one, it's the shortest one, was the one that was written first. And not everyone agrees with this, but some think that Mark was one of the source documents for Matthew and Luke's gospel. Mark, though, was not a disciple. 
He had no eyewitness testimony of his own from which to relate the events of Jesus' life. Again, it can't be proved, but it's thought that this Mark was John Mark that we read about in Acts. He was the helper who went on the first missionary journey with Paul and Barnabas. This John Mark, if it indeed was him that wrote the Mark's Gospel, was a close associate of the Apostle Peter, who certainly did have eyewitness testimony of Jesus' ministry. And in fact, it's thought that Mark's Gospel is the sermons of Peter directed towards the needs of the early Christian communities, carefully collated and arranged by John Mark. And this sort of explains why Mark excitedly starts by describing the story of Jesus' life on earth as only the beginning of the Gospel. If you think about it, this John Mark was party to some of the events that we read of in Acts, and he knew that the gospel story had already started to go out from Jerusalem through Judea and Judea, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth, a potent gospel that we know has flowed through mankind since and is as relevant to us today as it was in the time of Mark. Mark ignores the Bethlehem story, completely jumps straight in to telling us about John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. He outlines more about what Jesus did than what he said, and his account is vivid and fast-moving. He uses connectors like immediately or at once to move his story along. He focuses particularly on three things. He focuses on the cross, why it had a human cause, but also, more importantly, why it was a divine necessity. Secondly, he focuses on following Jesus, who he describes as a teacher or the rabbi. And some form of the word teach or teaching or teached occurs no fewer than 39 times in the book of Mark. Thirdly, and perhaps most saliently for us this morning for what we're talking about, Mark focuses on the identity of Jesus as the Son of Man, who when he walked this earth was wholly human. But he's also at pains to point out to us that at the same time, He was wholly divine. Who was Mark thinking would read his gospel? Well, again, we don't actually really know. But it is thought he could have been in Italy at the time. And he may have been in Rome itself, writing to the Christians in the Roman church there. Certainly he was writing to Gentiles. And we think he was writing to those who were about to suffer hardship for their faith persecution, and maybe even martyrdom, and that would certainly have been true of the Christians in the Roman church. What he seems to have been anxious to get across to his readers was exactly who this Jesus is that they should be following, none other than the Son of God. So he comes to the storm story. As we can probably remember from reading some of the Psalms, in the ancient Near East it was common for a divine being to be depicted as one who could control the uncontrollable, the tempestuous uh, elements of nature. Mark had previously in the first three chapters been telling his readers about Jesus' healing miracles and the casting out of demons, but in his day there were others, magicians and charlatans, who would have attempted to do these self-same things. So here in chapter 4, what Mark's coming to is something that couldn't be faked by a mere human. He sets the scene with a deliberate description of the humanity of Jesus by telling us he was asleep on a cushion in the back of the boat. 
The storm comes up suddenly. And remember, these fishermen, these disciples were experienced. They would have known the vagaries of the Sea of Galilee. I've never had the privilege of being there, but I understand the Sea of Galilee is in a basin which sits very low, below sea level. And it's surrounded by hills like the Golan Heights, where the wind just sweeps down and brings the water up into a sudden ferment. The disciples were terrified. They had not yet, in Mark's description, taken in who it is that's in the boat with them. Don't you care if we drown? They're shouting at Jesus as they wake him in their panic. And Jesus just gets up and rebukes the waves and tells the wind to be quiet, be still. Immediately, all becomes calm. But Mark tells us that even after the storm has calmed down, the disciples still don't understand who this is that's in the boat with them. They're still terrified. Who is this? Even the wind and waves obey him, they say to each other. And Mark leaves the story deliberately hanging there. He leaves his readers to answer the disciples' frightened question. Who is this? Well, Mark seems to imply, none other than the Son of Almighty God could possibly do that. Are any of us personally in the middle of a storm just now? Has the wind suddenly got up in your life and you're worried sick about something? It happens to us all from time to time. And if you're like me, you panic, you take your eyes off Jesus and you focus on the storm. We panic because we think the waves are going to swamp us. We wonder if God is asleep in the stern of the boat that we're in. And worse still, we maybe think he doesn't care if we drown. If we're doing that right now, and I put my hand up and say, I've done that, then our focus is in the wrong place. The truth is that God most certainly is not asleep. It was only the holy human part of Jesus that was asleep in the boat in Galilee. We live on the other side of the resurrection, and Jesus now sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding for each of us all the time. Jesus, part of the wonderful yet mysterious community of love, the Trinity of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that we worship. He cares so much for each one of us. He knows exactly the number of hairs that are on our head. He loves us with an everlasting love, and he does not slumber or sleep. Listen again, if you will, to the words of Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The first few words of that psalm, I think, are sometimes taken out of context. I come from Perth, that's where my childhood was. And on the other side of the river, from the main part of the town, there's a hill called Canoel Hill. At the top, there's a viewpoint. A little cairn has been built with a flat surface and a plaque on top. And from that, you can see out to the hills in the surrounding countryside. The lines on the the bronze plaque show you where each one is, and there's a name for each one. At the top of the plaque, the first bit of that psalm is quoted in the AV. It says, all in one straight sentence, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hill from whence cometh my strength. Full stop, nothing else. I actually don't think that that's what that passage is meant to convey. And as lovely as my home county hills are, they're not where our strength comes from. The origin of this psalm is obscure, like many psalms, but it is a psalm of ascents. 
the children of Israel would probably have sung this as they were going up, up the hills towards Jerusalem to worship in the temple. It's a pilgrimage psalm. There are many explanations, and I can only give you one, but the one I like and which fits with the TNIV, which puts a question mark at where does my help come from, is this. The pilgrims were walking along up towards Jerusalem, and they looked at the high places where people had put abhorrent things, worshipping other gods than Jehovah. And they were saying, no, my strength does not come from these hills and these things. I'm going to focus on the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, where my strength does come from. The psalm goes on to spell out for us the incredible promises of the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. We need to keep our focus in the right place, lest the storm overwhelm us. Maybe not physically, like waves might do, but here, inside our hearts and minds, where it can hugely disturb our peace. Keeping our focus on the right place requires effort, And yes, that horrid word, discipline. But it also grows our faith in the one who loves us and who, regardless of the waves that we're experiencing, is always right there in the boat with us, even when we don't sense his active presence. And this is where the somewhat moralistic advice of James comes in. James was writing to a Christian community rather than to individuals. This James is thought to have been the brother of Jesus. And he was probably the James that's mentioned in Acts as being a member at the Council of Jerusalem. The book of James is actually a strange book. Don't you just want to hit him when he says, Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you're you're facing trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. One commentary I read says the Greek root to the word trials here and the word tempted, which comes much later in chapter 1 of James, is the same. However, apparently here the emphasis is on outward things, outward difficulties that are affecting us rather than inner temptations to sin. The writing style of James is very akin to that of the Apostle Paul. And it's Paul who tells us in Romans to rejoice in our sufferings because we know they will produce perseverance. And perseverance produces character. And character, hope. Not unfounded optimism, but hope in the one thing that there is in our world to give us hope. The assurance of our future destiny. Based on the love of God, revealed by the Holy Spirit, and demonstrated through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus our Lord. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul prays that being rooted and established in this love, we may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. The verbally flat-footed James doesn't put it quite so eloquently. He just says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 
that's all very well, but how do we as a community of believers do this persevering bit? Well, that comes in verses 5 to 8 of the first chapter of James. What he's saying there is pray about it. Ask God for wisdom. He won't find fault with you because he loves you, and he will give generously to those who ask. This is the same James who later on in chapter 5 tells us about the prayer of faith. He says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. But going back to chapter 1, we need to believe and not doubt. Or we'll be like one of those waves on the Sea of Galilee being tossed about by the wind. If we keep focusing on the problem staring us in the face, our very finite mind becomes taken up with the problem so much we cannot receive from the Lord. We get so caught up in our own instability with our minds casting hither and thither that we can't at the same time remain solidly grounded in God's love. If there are storm clouds on our horizon just now, or if the clouds are already disgorging their contents in the boat of our lives, whatever that may mean for each one of us, I cannot promise that the effects of the storm will be magic away. But what the word seems to assure us of is that as we focus on Jesus, the Son of God, and speak to him in prayer, believing and not doubting, he can come to us on the inside and calm our hearts and minds. He's our hope and our anchor, the rock of our salvation, the only place of true security and peace even in the midst of the most violent storm that life can throw at us. Just recently I was reminded of an old Simon and Garfunkel song, Bridge Over Troubled Water. Thinking the lyrics of that song were all wrong in this context, I ended up thinking aloud to the Lord and writing these words. You were and are never a bridge over troubled water. When would I grow if you constantly ran and held such water back? No, you permit the troubled water to touch my life so that I may know you're leading through it rather than over it. Finally, let me close with a chorus from an old hymn that is much more eloquent than I. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen. Let's continue our worship now by praying for others. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, because of what your son did at Calvary and the resulting rending of the curtain in the temple in two, we have access to the Holy of Holies even now here as we sit before you. We know that in prayer we can therefore all as believers stand in the gap between the reality of this world and the throne room of heaven for the many who we know need your touch in some way this morning. Lord, we thank you for that privilege. Lord, there are many things that we could pray for for our world today, so many points of need. But perhaps today we first ask for a revelation of your wisdom to come to the managers of this world's financial systems, specifically to the government ministers of governments within the Eurozone, particularly those of the new governance of Greece and Italy, as they seek to keep Europe from the edge of extreme financial difficulty. We have absolutely no idea of the complexities of what we ask, but we rely on your word. 
which tells us that you, almighty God, to you nothing is impossible. Abroad again, we think of Libya and the capture of Saif al-Islam Gaddafi. We ask for the traditional transitional government in that place at the moment to be enabled increasingly now to bring that country to a place of peace and reconciliation, just and free democratic government for all. And Lord, may there come an end to the terrible fighting and the, and the dawn of a new era for the people of Syria. And we think too in that context of Egypt as well. Lord, there are many countries that need your peace and provision. We think of the countries of East Africa suffering famine. We think of Iraq and Afghanistan. And there are others we quietly name before you now. But in thinking so far afield, we don't want to forget home here too. We pray for our country. Father, help us as a nation to find you once more as the answer to our lostness, our chaos, our loneliness, insecurities, and most of all, our lack of hope. Lord, we pray now for our friends, fellow church members and families. We think again of Lois and Graham. But also in our hearts, we quietly name others we know before you now. Father, may your peace rest on them. May they have an awareness of your presence, even as we pray. And may they find in you the answer to the needs that they individually face at this time. Finally, we lift Katrina before you and ask that she may be strengthened and refreshed from her time away from her usual work this weekend. Bless her, dear Lord, restore her and fill her full of good things that come from you, that she may come back to this church family enriched and ready to impart more of what she hears from you. Thank you for her and for all that she means to us who are here this morning. We ask all these things, knowing that you are a God who hears our prayers, spoken and unspoken, a God who hears our very heartbeat. For we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.